Hello, and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and before we get into the show, I just want to state, for the record, and without any equivocation, that I simply do not believe the Earth is round. I mean, it just isn't logical for the Earth to be round. And I'm Valerie Hoagland, and I'm very excited to talk to you, finally, about an episode of Enterprise. And I'm Valerie Hoagland, and I'm... Wait, have we had this conversation before? Yeah, we, we several times. In fact, we've recorded this entire episode a dozen times. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it does feel <laughs> kind of familiar. Yeah, I enjoyed this episode, I will say, the first nine times. <laughs> yeah, 10, 11, and 12 uh, weren't as fun. No, we should we should probably go see a doctor about this. <laughs> well, and indeed, we are doing our very first, finally, Enterprise episode here on Lower Decks. We've done some on Patreon before, but this is the first time we've ever done an Enterprise episode on the main show here. And uh, of course, we are on the record all over the place as being real Enterprise apologists, <laughs> Enterprise defenders. And uh, so I'm very excited for this. The episode that we are going to do is the 16th episode of the second second season, and it is Future Tense. This aired on February 19th in 2003. Why does 2003 feel longer ago than like 1989? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. All the other dates feel like that's yeah, historical, but yet somehow this makes me feel old. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like it's that it's closer to us in time and also farther away. I don't know what it is about it, but yeah, 2003. Um, the episode was written by Mike Sussman and Phyllis Strong and directed by James Whitmore Jr. Well, just one more note before we get into the episode, and that is just to remind everyone that we are voting this month to decide which Star Trek movie series is going to become our next crowdfunding goal. And so if you have strong feelings about whether you would like us to cover the TNG movies or the original cast TOS movies or the Abramsverse movies, and you are not already with us on Patreon at the Archon level or higher, now is a great time to join us so that you can uh, have your say in that. And the ballot is already out for people who've been with us. And if you join up before the end of the month, I'll get you the ballot uh, pretty much immediately uh, so that you can vote. And at that level, of course, too, it's not just this ballot that you get to vote on. You get to keep voting as, as long as you're with us at that level, which means you'll also be getting to decide the regular episodes that we do. And of course, there's also tons and tons of bonus material on there, bonus episodes on there for people from all the shows that we do all over the network. So uh, we do hope that you'll, you'll take us up on this. And I, like Valerie said, I'm so excited to do movies, I also only get to watch anything uh, unless I'm going to, if I'm going to podcast about it, because that's what life with a toddler is. Yet I also spend with my toddler a ton of time listening to Star Trek film scores from all three franchises. I have some particular favorite film scores. And so I'm always thinking about the movies and never getting to watch them. So this is going to be great for me as well. Yeah, there's a some of my favorite episodes that we've done are on Patreon, um, where we were also doing one off Trek episodes, um, even when we were covering Discovery um, on the main on the main feed. So there's there's a backlog of really awesome conversations there. And, uh, and as Glenn said, voting for this and signing up at that second level means you also get to vote later, or some might say you can vote in the present tense, and also the future tense. 
yeah, I'm a little surprised that that's the joke we're making about the the title and not making a joke about the fact that last month we did past prologue uh, for <laughs> Deep Space Nine and those were on the ballot together. And I have to imagine they were actually very close. So I have to imagine that people just saw those and said, I'm voting for time. That's what I'm voting for. It's a double a double ticket here. I'm just going to vote for both of those uh, that have time stuff in the title and uh, hope that one of them is a time travel episode. And uh, past prologue was not. So we'll have to find out if future tense is. And uh, let's get into it. So the so the episode opens with the Enterprise exploring, uh, you know, outer space, and they come across a small derelict spaceship. There are no signs that anyone is alive in there, and it does not seem to be dangerous in any way. So Captain Archer just brings it into Launch Bay 2. And the ship has no windows. It's got no visible propulsion system. And there's a hatch on it, but that hatch has been fused from the outside so that Whoever is or or was in it couldn't get out. So, you know, it's mysterious. Now, of course, Reed, Malcolm Reed, is always ready to use a phaser. So he unfuses the hatch with one, and inside they find a corpse in a chair. And T'Pol scans the corpse and identifies it as human. Uh, I'm going to have a question about this a little bit later. Uh, but the point here is that right, this is the end of the teaser. And uh, the point is that it's going to be an episode about figuring out who this human is, how this human got out this far in space, given that Enterprise is the first human ship to go this far from Earth. And all of that is just a really great setup, right? I mean, it's a mystery. And I love this type of mystery. There's not actually much in this teaser. There's also even just very little talking in this teaser the 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 visuals right the camera uh, and also the music have to do a lot of the work here and i'll say valerie i think they both do a great job of it like as teasers go as 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 doing the work of making me not flip to something else in the middle of the commercial uh this really does it like i'm hooked here yeah this is a classic trek you know plot line of we found something floating outside in space near the ship and uh it's it's either from the past or the future. Um, let's let's bring it in and take a look. Um, maybe it's a piece of a NASA shuttle. Um, <laughs> maybe uh, it's a weird pod from the 31st century. Let's find out. But those are always really fun. And it's a cool way to, um, you know, make an episode about make it kind of like subdivide out what Trek is already widely doing, which is let's have an episode where we talk about our history and our future as themes and ways to engage with and think about the world that we have today, where we came from, where we want to be going. Yeah. And, and this episode was like kind of slow in general in a really lovely way. Um, It didn't uh, hit me over the head with anything. It was just really pleasant to watch. And you, you see that starting right here in the teaser. Yeah, it has a nice mood to it, right? It, it is calm, especially the first act is pretty calm as we're just going to try to figure out this mystery. Uh, only a few characters at a time on screen together. And and we're going to get in the episode as we go a number of just casual conversations that aren't necessarily about the plot of the episode, but that are more about the themes of the episode or just some quiet character moments. And I always really enjoy that. I, I like, Valerie, that you, you know your joke that you made here about it being something from either the past or the future. And I, I wonder, surely someone actually has a spreadsheet on this that breaks down the weird objects found in space and and whether they are from the future, the past, or the present. And I expect that we would find that almost none of them are ever from the present. Like this is almost always a time travel type, uh, and either a time travel or a let's explore our uh, the history of our invented world here uh, catalyst. Right, that it's that type of plot device. It's never something from the present, is it? No, and I mean, I guess sometimes it's oh, some aliens 
took some humans, brought them real far away. We didn't know about it. Uh, and now here are some remnants of that, like, though, which is, I guess, kind of still a history episode, right? Right, right. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to imagine what it would be that it, if it were the present, because like even inner light, right, is like a past focused. You find this yeah. probe floating in space and then it becomes this past focused thing. And I guess that's just what happens if you come upon something drifting in space that is not actively <laughs> mobile in the present. <laughs> um, so maybe what we're saying isn't that interesting. But anyway, I'm going to make that spreadsheet. <laughs> Maybe what we're saying isn't that interesting is exactly the mission statement of this podcast. So we're <laughs> we're on point today, at least. Well, all right. We come back from the the commercial and also the the, the theme song, and we are in sick bay. Fox confirms that this body, this corpse, is a human, but he has not actually been able to get any genetic material yet because the body is badly damaged. T'Pol has scanned around the Enterprise, and she can't find any ships or any inhabitable planets for several light years. So it's a total mystery where this person and where this vessel came from. And Archer speculates that maybe this is Zephram Cochran, the inventor of the warp drive, who disappeared uh, mysteriously in a one-person ship. And this mention of Zephram Cochran here, this is just the first nod of a few that we're going to get in this episode, uh, in nods to the original series, I should say. Yeah, this is part of what makes Enterprise um, so fun to watch and why I think, you know, it's certainly not a perfect show, but it is cool to see something that happened before TOS um, and so close to our own moment in time, because then we get to have the knowledge of what happens in in the future kind of guiding us. And they hit us over the head with it in Enterprise a lot, especially with Prime Directive and uh, United Federation of Planets stuff. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But here... um, work are we what are we doing foreshadowing are we foreshadowing is that how this would work right are you really foreshadowing something that's already happened yeah this is the weird this is the weird time stuff that happens with star trek or really i guess when you get any kind of prequel so yeah i think it's not technically foreshadowing because we all actually have already seen the episode you know of of the original series but uh homage i guess it's really just an illusion or reference well, whatever it is, um, I liked it. And let's talk about it a little bit. So what what are they referencing here? Part of what they're referencing is not only, you know, the amazing film, First Contact, which maybe we will cover for you, um, but also the TOS episode Metamorphosis, which is, um, I think, the second episode of the second season. So we get uh, Amok Time and then this, which is pretty cool. Um, and the plot of it is that we find Zephram Cochran uh, on an asteroid out in space real far away. Uh, and he's still alive, even though he's been missing for 150 years. And so the crew of the Enterprise uh, here in Future Tense does not know any of this. But what they do know is that Zephram Cochran took uh, a small ship, just big enough for him, uh, and went out into the galaxy and then was never heard of again. It's kind of got like Amelia Earhart vibes. It's making me think of (laughs) of Voyager um, here. And in the TOS episode Metamorphosis, um, they find that there is a a non-corporeal life form called the Companion that found Cochran brought him to this asteroid, reversed his aging process, and has been uh, letting him hang out there. Um, I love this episode of TOS. It's also the colors of it and the visual of it is so striking and fun. Um, If you have 
if you see stills of what the companion looks like and you've seen this episode before, it will immediately come to mind. It's it's really visually iconic in a lot of ways. Um, and Glenn, you have previously referred to this, um, the companion, as kind of like Q before there was Q. Right, which the original series did a lot of. There were a lot of sort of proto cues in the in the original series, and then uh, you know I think just solidifying all of that idea into Q is uh, one of the great contributions of of many, I guess, that TNG made to to Star Trek. And uh, but I'm with you. I love this episode a lot, and it is. You're right. The second episode of this season, which is really awesome, because I you know what we get in the second season of the original series is uh, episode one is let's learn a little bit more about Vulcans, like which is a huge part of this made-up world that this story is taking place in. So let's let's explore that a little bit and then do it in the with the theme of friendship. And then the second episode is let's uh, explain how space travel is possible, like what's up with that, and also really kind of put some temporal markers on when this show is even taking place, which was a little bit confused in the first season. And so that's where we get all this stuff with Zephyrum Cochran. But then this episode has this real theme of romantic love where we had friend love in Amok Time. And it's a really awesome way to open up this season. It's really well thought of. We've talked before on some episodes about how much we love the second season of the original series, but just this one-two opening is amazing. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think Q, you know, John Delancey obviously took a lot more um, from the Squire of Gothos than he did from yeah. the non-corporeal life form of <laughs> Companion. Um, but, you know, we can we can see we can see the influence there. Yeah. John Delancey decided uh, there just wasn't enough room in Picard's relationship with Crusher. So he decided not to play the, the romance and went with the uh, petulant child <laughs> aspect from oh, the Squire I, of Gothos instead. I think the instead. Internet would disagree. I think the internet would disagree, Glenn. Uh, there are, I think Q is clearly in love with Picard. There's, there are many arguments about this on the internet. So, but you know, that can be its own other episode. Well, and we might even get to talk about that at length uh, when we cover the second season of Picard, though. Uh, uh, those are still just rumors, I guess, at this point. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get back to Zephyrm Cochran here, I guess. Right. So Archer is contacting Starfleet headquarters about this whole, maybe this is Zephyrm Cochran angle. Uh, and meanwhile, Trip and Reed are going to take a look at the actual ship itself. What we know about the ship so far is that it has no propulsion system and that it is also made of a, a kind of stealth material. And in fact, if it hadn't been damaged, it never would have even shown up on the Enterprise's sensors. And so Trip and, and Reed, they're inside the ship and they see a, a hatch in the bottom. Uh, this is covered with some kind of blue substance that registers as organic and they don't stop or, you know, put on any gloves. They don't put on any masks, like nothing like that. They just get the hatch open. They find uh, a hatchway here with a, a ladder. And it's like a 15-foot a hatchway that goes down. And the thing is, right, like that is totally impossible. 15 feet from the bottom of the ship is out into outer space. So this totally should not be possible. What they were expecting to find uh, is a little recess with like some electronic components or something, not something that actually is itself bigger than the ship that they're in and also bigger than the Enterprise it, itself. And I do want to point out here that they explicitly say bigger on the inside at this point. And now it is also time to point out that the, the shade of blue on the outside of this is uh, definitely what we might call TARDIS blue. Uh, all of this is a, a big Doctor Who homage. Of course, they go down and investigate, uh, both of them, without a single word to the bridge to tell them they're doing this. This made me super nervous, Valerie. I just, even though I've seen this episode many times, I still spent this entire scene just 
really thinking that the hatch is going to close on them and they're going to be stuck in there. It makes me so uncomfortable. Oh my gosh, no. This entire episode was like, you really do get kind of hit over the head with the feeling of like, this is the first deep space mission and they do not know (laughs) what they are doing. And I'd like to think that on our first deep space mission, we would know better than this because it just feels like kids being like, huh, what's this button do? Hmm, where's this go? <laughs> and like, I didn't think they'd get stuck in there, but I certainly thought um, there would be a dangerous thing down there. They're just like pressing buttons with like no caution at all. I like when they remove the, the component part that they're going to find down there, it felt very like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like I thought like, <laughs> It was going to trigger some horrible thing. Um, Maybe they'd explode. Maybe they'd hit a (laughs) self-destruct button. I don't know. But like, it all feels, even if they had called into the bridge, which they certainly should have done, um, it all felt very dangerous and ill-conceived. And you know what they're trying to do here is they're trying to build like a a buddy thing, a buddy, (laughs) what what do you call that? Like a duo um, between Trip and Reed. All of Enterprise is trying to do this. It's just that Malcolm is so insufferable that like we don't want it. Um, And, you know, it's not it's not Tom Paris and Harry Kim, but that's what they're trying to do. Um, And this episode is full of couplings that they're trying to do that don't work, (laughs) Um, uh, which we will get to later. But it is in some way kind of fun to see them playing around if we can suspend our fear that something horrible is going to happen. It's fun to see them exploring together, um, kind of being like, what's this? What's this? And I do, I, I really do very much dislike the entire character of Malcolm. However, it's an interesting way to present us with a weapons officer, right? Like nobody thinks that weapons are necessary. He's got this very militaristic, like you can tell when he gets out the phaser, even to cut the hatch that like he's having to like, he's like pointing the phaser at the ground and hitting a bunch of buttons. Like this is still early on where we're treating weapons way more cautiously. It's not just everyone has a phaser. It's always sudden stun. It's super easy to do. And I thought that world building was kind of cool. I, I agree. And, you know, if this had been Worf in this position, like we would have already blown something up, up, or at least he would have advised it, you know, at this point. So, yeah, there is a nice little contrast there between Reed and Worf. And, yeah, I think part of my response to the episode this time is really informed by having a toddler and really just having to look at everything as if it might be the most dangerous thing that has ever happened and uh, that I need to do something about it, which largely is move it to the garage, you know, whatever it is. And I guess actually that is what they have. I've done with this ship is put it in the Enterprise's garage. But yeah, having uh, having a little ha- having a, a kid to you know worry about and care about and protect has really mis- made me see danger everywhere and to like shout at the TV a lot more than I ever have. And I'm not sure I like it. All right. So what is actually happening in here? Uh, no toddlers in this episode, but what's actually happening here is that Reed and Trip find a faint energy signal coming from this bigger on the inside part of the ship. And they get a, a device that they're going to take to engineering. But also, as this has been going on, Archer has been dealing with something else, a Suleban vessel that has shown up. And the Suleban also want the the ship. Uh, Archer stalls a little bit. And so the Suleban just 
send some invisible people to the launch bay at the exact same moment that Reed and Trip are leaving the the ship. And so we get some fisticuffs. Uh, there's also a spaceship fight. We get those uh, simultaneously, which is actually a really quite exciting uh, action sequence, I'll say. And of course, in the end, our heroes get the Suliban to run away. And so now what we have is an external threat to deal with. And the Enterprise then is going to rendezvous with a Vulcan ship that can take this small craft that they found back to Earth more quickly. But we also get a, a countdown clock here because the rendezvous point is three days away. And in the meantime, Flox has made a startling discovery. The dead man from the ship has Vulcan DNA. I mean, he, he's still anatomically human, but he's got a Vulcan ancestor from at least four generations ago, and also some ancestors from at least two other species. But none of that makes any sense because humans and Vulcans have not even had contact for four human generations. Uh, also, as everyone knows, humans and Vulcans cannot reproduce. And there's a lot to say about this. There's a lot of Spock not being talked about here or being talked about <laughs> yeah. without being mentioned. But this actually really had me curious about what T'Pol was even scanning for when she pronounced this person to be a human in the teaser, right? Because I think we all just default to assuming that a proclamation like that is based on some kind of genetic analysis, but that's not the case here. So what is it that she was scanning, do you think? Is it like scanning soft tissues? Is she like like mapping like internal organs or something like that? I mean, I have no idea how I would answer this this question. I also have no <laughs> idea how this the body that we see um, a couple times in the show looks as human as it does. If it ends up having what we will learn is like lots of different um, species, you know, DNA. Um, it's uh, uh, pretty remarkable um, that that the body looks so human and so familiar to us. So I don't know. I don't. I don't think if you're right. It feels like an obvious mistake. <laughs> Um, but I'm not sure we just, we need the obvious mistake for the plot to happen. You know, um, one of the things I'm grateful for in this, in this mistake is that we get to spend more time with flocks. I, I will say that I'm not sure I would feel the way that I feel about enterprise if flocks weren't in it. Um, he's one of my favorite Trek characters of all time. Um, and what would they do without him? You know, like we we would be really screwed as humans on this first deep space mission without <laughs> T'Pol and without Phlox. Um And I just really think he shines. He shines on screen um, and delivers his doctor lines really well. And we get we get another small social moment with him later in the episode. But, you know, this is also th the first beat in this. Um, this can Vulcans and humans reproduce um, I guess plot point um, in in this episode, and it's strange in a couple of ways. One, you're totally right, is that we're talking about Spock without talking about Spock, and you said, Glenn, something like, "As we all know, humans and Vulcans can't reproduce," but it's like, no, we actually all know they can. <laughs> we all know that. That's like the one thing we know because Spock. But every time Archer says exactly that, well, we all know that Vulcans and humans can't reproduce and then is looking directly in the camera with like a double wink and a nod. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's overselling it a little bit. Enterprise does a lot of enthusiastic, like, <laughs> uh, like, like they want our approval for having done it kind of overselling <laughs> like every time, like I mentioned with the prime directive stuff or um, even in this episode where he's like, we should fire the 
phase cannons and then kind of like looks at the camera. It's like, okay, yes, they will become phasers. We understand. (laughs) Um, But that is kind of like the cheesy lovability of Enterprise is that they do so much of that. Um, Kind of like there's always someone next to you, like nudging you a little bit with the elbow going, "Eh, eh." (laughs) Um, but you know what they're also trying to do um, in this episode, which I, I personally think they fail miserably at, and I think they eventually figure that out um, on the show itself, is they're still trying to pair to Paul and Archer. They're still trying to get us to think that there might be some um, romantic or sexual tension between them. The problem is there just is not. Like their no. relationship is completely absent of any of those tones at all, and it does not work. What what's happening in this episode, right? The common denominator here is Trip. The writers just have not figured out who to pair up Trip with. Some of which I do think is about knowing the character. I think a lot of it though is just about Connor Trenier and and then the other actors like having chemistry or not, or having that type of chemistry, whichever it is that they're looking for. Which you just don't know till you you got a bunch of episodes already filmed and can can see that. And I love where they take this uh, with with Trip in particular, though. It's a little sad that Reed then never really quite finds anyone to, you know, have a buddy, to have as a buddy. Yeah, Reed is kind of sad. Reed's a kind of sad character. <laughs> Everything about his 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 past and his his present is like pretty sad. I feel like that's what we we learn about him um, over and over. And I did actually recently come across an interview with Dominic Keating where he said he was playing the character as as gay, and that that to him was like extremely obvious and an important part of like. what he was trying to bring to the character um and knowing that re-watching enterprise um everything kind of takes on a different cadence and that like loneliness um takes on a different cadence too especially when this version of the world that we are given in, in enterprise which is you know the early 2000s is still not a moment in tv where we are explicitly envisioning a future um that is not homophobic um so you still have that sense of like loneliness and isolation and otherness, um, which is, yeah, a really interesting way to return to the character of Malcolm um, and and might make me, you know, feel feel differently about him. But yeah, the just the the really trying to make sexual chemistry between Archer and Paul in this episode over and over. It's like it's not even awkward, like the conversations they're trying to make awkward in a flirtatious way. It's just uncomfortable. Um yeah, I, I I didn't I didn't love that. Also, it seems really clear to me that these two species could probably reproduce, and also that T'Pol herself would have knowledge of this kind of being a thing in the universe, right? Like, I ha- I have a hard time believing her incredulousness. Yeah, we're going to get a lot of uh, scientific incredulousness from T'Pol in this episode, but I don't even really quite understand where or, you know, at what point Star Trek as a franchise decided to make a big deal out of even just the biological existence of Spock. But it's something that becomes a huge factor in uh, in season four of Enterprise. And it's, it's an episode arc that I actually really quite love. So I don't regret its existence. But we all know Spock exists. And in on screen in, in TOS, we don't get any indication that, that there had to be some kind of medical or scientific intervention for Sarek and uh, Amanda Grayson to reproduce. We don't get anything like that. And then... Certainly, in 
TNG, we have, and, and Voyager, right? We have all sorts of interspecies, uh, in, in all sorts of interspecies individuals, humans and other species having children all the time. And we get some of that actually answered. And, and also your question as well, Valerie, about how human this person is looking with all this other alien DNA. I mean, this is what the six season TNG episode, The Chase is all about is saying, actually, you're all genetically related because um, you were all genetically engineered. All the all the sentient species in, in the galaxy were genetically engineered by some earlier alien civilization. So that's why you can all reproduce and also why you're all, you know, bipeds. Is that true? Is that it's actually all sentient? Because it's it's humanoids, right? It's all well. Hum- that's true. Yes. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Even in this episode, uh, we will encounter some non-humanoid um, aliens, and they're like they're rare in the in the Trek world um, comparatively. But but that's like kind of an important point, and I would love to learn more about that. Like, how did those uh, aliens develop compared to to humanoids? But of course, that TNG episode was on my mind, where we understand. Of course, um, all of these species can reproduce with one another because they, you know, there's a common ancestry. Yeah, it's a weird choice. And actually, if anyone in the audience knows where Star Trek decided to go this direction, because I have a suspicion that this is something that exists in the literary canon in the book universe of of Star Trek that then Enterprise uh, picked up. But I don't know. But if we've got listeners out there who do know this, I would love to hear about it. But at any rate, you know, here in Enterprise, this is regarded as an impossible thing. And so we've got that going on, right? The, you know, uh, a, a human with a Vulcan ancestor. And then we've got another impossible thing going on. And that is a ship that is bigger on the inside. And so Archer now thinks that he understands what is going on, right? The only thing that could uh, make either of these things possible is time travel. And of course, this is something that Archer has some experience with because he's been interacting with someone from the future off and on for you know the entirety of the first and second season here, someone who is an agent in the temporal Cold War. But since you know we're just kind of randomly doing this episode that is in the middle of an arc here, uh, we should pause and get some background on that. So Valerie, can you get us up to speed on this temporal Cold War? Yeah, I'll try. Um, I think it's it's no secret that the temporal Cold War is no one's favorite plot. Is that is that true? Do people like? I believe this? that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I don't. I really don't think that anyone loves this. Though I'd love to hear from someone who does. Yeah, I mean, like it's it's one of those things that could have been interesting, but just like never really landed right um, on Enterprise. They never quite, you know, uh, stuck the landing with it. But you know, in the um, in the two part pilot to Enterprise um, Broken Bow, it is actually kind of cool. It's a cool setup. So the general setup with the temporal Cold War is that there are different um, factions from different points in the future who have all figured out how to time travel and all have an interest in going back to different points of their history in the timeline and changing things for their own benefit in one way or another. And there are lots of players here, but maybe I'll just stick to a few of the big ones and their interaction and enterprise. So in the first season, we get a lot of the Suliban cabal. So these are 28th century Suliban's, or maybe not. There's a mysterious benefactor from the 28th century that is controlling present day Suliban's and helping them be genetically engineered. Is that more right? Yeah, that's that's right. These are not Suliban's from the future, but they are Suliban who've been genetically engineered using technology from the future 
at the behest of and, and guidance of someone from the future, someone who we never see. So we don't know this person's individual identity. We don't know what species this person is or what political citizenship or, or anything like that. Yeah. And we actually never do like in Enterprise. There there are moments in, in season one um, where Archer interacts with this person, like talks to them, but it's like in a fuzzy kind of distorted image um, in in a room with like temporal distortion. Um, and yeah, we never really know who who this 28th century person is or what their interests are, um, but they are using, they're genetically engineering present day Suleban to to be their agents um, back in time. And the other big player in the temporal Cold War, as we understand it in season two of Enterprise, is a Federation agent from the 31st century named Daniels, who uh, were basically told it's his job. There's like an entire wing, I guess, of the Federation doing this in the 31st century to go back in time and make sure nothing gets messed up and kind of stop all the people who are trying to interfere with the timeline. Right. Because the people who are trying to interfere with the timeline, what they're trying specifically to do is to prevent the Federation from coming into existence because the Federation is bad for them in some way. And the idea is, I mean, this is kind of a, a wonderful life type of episode or type of idea, type of arc where it's like, you know, imagine if the Federation had never happened that, you know, despite all of the criticisms that we might have of the Federation, especially in Deep Space Nine, uh, despite all of that, if the Federation had never existed, life would have been way worse for more people. That's kind of the idea here, what what it's trying to get us to think about. And uh, it is also, I think, no mistake that the writers decided to put this uh, uh, temporal Cold War espionage unit in the 31st century, as in 31, as in Section 31. Huh. 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 How mysterious. <laughs> yes, um, indeed. I cracked it wide open. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You did. Really. Thank you for that. Um, so this is all to say that, yeah, we have we have Daniels from the 31st century. He's basically our, our Federation. He's our Starfleet guy. He's coming back. He's trying to keep everything on the up and up. He's trying to stop anyone who wants to interfere with the timeline. And the big people who we at this point know want to interfere with the timeline are this 28th century faction controlling 22nd century Suleban. Um, So if that was confusing, you're welcome. The Temporal Cold War is extremely confusing, and it involves so many other things. When we get into later seasons of Enterprise, we're going to have Zindi. We're going to have Sphere Builders. Um, We know from the pilot of Enterprise that the Klingons are getting messed with by by the Suleban Cabal. And we're going to soon meet some Tholians and uh, later in, in Enterprise Andorian. So lots of people are involved here. It's really hard for me to wrap my head around not the idea of time travel, as I'm sure we'll discuss how how Paul's doubt plays into this episode, but it's hard for me to get my head around the fact that we figured out how to time travel and that stuff just isn't being mucked with all the time. Like, it, it's just hard to, like, be left alone, <laughs> um, basically, if you think there are people out there who can time travel, and that must just be affecting everything all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, if you really start to think about whether or not that's even, like, happening in our own world, I mean, that just is going to lead to just some some 
Lovecraftian style madness there, right? To wonder like, are my memories even real? Is that actually what happened? Or is it just that someone went back before that and changed things? And, uh, you know, f- five minutes ago, I would have had a different memory and would have been a totally different person. You just, well, it's a, you just can't go down that. Don't go down that road. But it's kind of impossible not to when you really start to think about what would actually be going on here. So, and all this time travel business is something that uh, Brandon Braga, the, the showrunner of Enterprise, had sort of forced on him by the the network. It's a little more complicated than that. But I'm glad that after this season, after the second season, we really largely go away from that, even though it is there as kind of a an impetus in the background of season three. It stops being there in so many episodes. And I'm glad of that. I think most of us were, were glad of that. Yeah. And, and then we also have the classic kind of Trek problem where we have so, you know, hundreds of different writers over so many different shows, so many different episodes, and so many different parts of the world and so many different timelines within Trek that all Trek to some degree touches time travel, but they all do it a little different, right? Like, yes, <laughs> does it exist? How does it work? How does it affect us? It really is always one of those Trek no babble situations where you're like, all right, you made this up for this episode. Um, and it's kind of confusing. And I don't personally as a viewer really enjoy any of the kind of time based episodes unless, you know, unless we're going back to to San Francisco in the 90s or something. Um, and I get to see <laughs> Spock in a headband, or riding the bus, you know, <laughs> like, unless I get that, I'm not really interested. And the thing is that Enterprise does this for so long, it's like, okay, can we stop with it now? <laughs> like, um, but we do need to know for the purpose of this episode, that there is something called a temporal Cold War, that Archer believes that it is real and that Daniels is from the 31st century, that the Suleban are being controlled by someone from the 28th century, um, and that all of this is something he buys into. Then we also need to know that T'Pol absolutely does not believe that any of this is true. Right. Yeah. So that is where we are right now. And so Archer and T'Pol go into Daniels's uh, quarters that he used to maintain here on the, the Enterprise. And there's a database in there that Archer uses. You know, he looks up this ship design, I guess, and, and uses the database here, or this entry in the database to confirm that, yeah, the ship we've got in Launch Bay 2 is very much from the 31st century. And you know, now that we've got that information, really, it's it's time here in the, the story for the, the next action beat to come. And, and that's so that the stakes can be raised now that we've got this information. And the next action beat comes in the form of another ship that's coming to try to get Archer to release this craft from the future uh, so that they can have it. But now it is not Sulabans. It is uh, people you've alluded to already, Valerie. It's the Tholians. And this is another deep cut that uh, I think could use some explication before we move on. Yeah, there's a lot of that in this episode. <laughs> it is kind of like, I can see also why Enterprise is a bit of a independently difficult show to get into because there there's so many references. So I suppose you could enjoy the episode just fine without them. Right. Okay. So the Tholians are again, a reference, uh, a reference forward in time that we don't have a name for um, to a TOS episode in season three. It says episode nine, the Tholian web. And I always think of the Tholian web because I think of the web itself that is in this episode being the visual that Q's barrier in encounter at Farpoint is calling upon to make this like space barrier. Yeah, I you know, I had not ever noticed that before, but uh, I guess what we're learning in this episode is all roads point to Q. Yeah, I mean, if all roads point to John Delancey, I'm fine with that. And I don't know, Glenn, if you've seen the season two trailer, but 
He's looking good. Oh, I have not. I, I actually, honestly, I wasn't even certain it was confirmed. I even think earlier in this episode called that a rumor. So, okay, well, now I know what I'm doing when we uh, when we get done with this episode. Yeah, you're going to need to uh, immediately tell me uh, all of your thoughts about how handsome Q looks. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's deeply unsettling. But, um, okay, so there's a TOS episode called The Tholian Web. It's the first time that we meet the Tholians, and we'll meet them more later in Enterprise, and it'll get more complicated. But all we need to know for now is that they are a crystalline, non-humanoid species. They're from the Alpha Quadrant, and they're pretty secretive. We we get to know, like, very little, very few facts about them, and they're just stated as facts, little factoids dropped in the Tholian Web, like... Um, they don't like being deceived and they're very punctual. Um, <laughs> for some reason, these are the things that build these, these, uh, the character, the monoculture of this species. But the other cool stuff about them is that they, they exist, they, they thrive in very, very high temperatures. And I thought looking into this, that, that this was really cool in the TOS episode, the Tholian web, the Tholian we see on the view screen is just portrayed by like a, a weird puppet um, and Enter- Enterprise does a really cool job reconstructing them um, later on in the show. But there was kind of like a ripply effect to the visual on the view screen in the Tholian web, which led fans to speculate that maybe they le- they live in very high temperature environments and we were seeing heat waves and that was what the ripple was. And then Enterprise picked up on that and kind of made it canon saying that, you know, they, they live in temperatures, I think, over like 400 degrees Kelvin or something absurd like that. And we don't actually see them at all in this episode. We get no visual of Tholians, but we do get audio and it takes up this idea as well that these are not humanoid aliens. And so they're genuinely strange and genuinely alien in ways that, you know, Vulcans maybe just are are not, that they, they seem familiar to us, but the Tholians do not. And here in the audio, you know, we hear a kind of like screeching sound that we just wouldn't recognize inherently or implicitly as as being speech. And then we get this cool computer sounding like translation, I guess, of it that they themselves are sending, the Tholians themselves are sending to the Enterprise in order to uh, to communicate. And it's a very cool, very unsettling effect. It is. And it's neat to see that by the time we get to TOS, the universal translator works so well that there are no glitches. It just comes across as um, as English, um, which which is cool. And there is kind of another uh, reference here, even in the plot, because in the Tholian web, Kirk is gone. They're trying to get Kirk back. It's a complicated plot. But the Tholians are like, hey, you're in our space. Get out of here. And Spock is like, I need exactly one hour and 53 minutes because that's the next time we're going to be able to try to get Kirk back. Please give it to us. And Spock is telling the truth. He's being very sincere. Um, And this is where we learn that the Tholians prize punctuality. Um, They're (laughs) like, we'll give you exactly an hour and 53 minutes. Something goes wrong. That they didn't foresee going wrong, um, but, you know, messes up the time and then the Tholians are a little grumpy about it. Here we see Paul give the Tholians, try to give them a fake timeline, try to lie to them, to deceive them, and kind of knowing that maybe the Tholians' first interactions with a human ship were a specific time-based lie helps me look at the TOS episode differently to be like, obviously, they wouldn't trust us. Right, and 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 from a Vulcan science officer, right? <laughs> the, the parallels are are pretty precise. 
pretty, pretty precise. But uh, look, Spock was telling the truth, okay? All right. Well, I think at this point now we've had all of the like deep TOS references that we're going to get and also the uh, and also the fact that, hey, we're actually in the middle of an arc. We've gotten all of that out of the way. And uh, I think it's actually quite good storytelling that what immediately follows up all of this are actually uh, a, a pair of, of quiet moments, a pair of conversations that are about time travel as a sort of more abstract uh, concept. And these conversations, these character moments for me are the real heart of the episode and makes Future Tense, I, I think, a pretty standout episode, a pretty good episode. The first of these is, you've, you've alluded to this already, Valerie, the first of these is Phlox and T'Pol in the galley late at night. And you've also said already, Valerie, how much you love Phlox. I love Phlox too. I am on Team Phlox all the way. I love both of these characters. And I think the dynamic between them is really, I mean, it's just awesome. It's just great. Like Phlox is inhaling food and he's super chatty. But T'Pol isn't in the galley to eat. She's actually there to work. And this is something that we see her do a lot on the show. It's a real quiet part of her character that she likes to work alone in the galley rather than like in her quarters or something. And like, especially late at night, we, this isn't like a lot of episodes, but it, no one ever really talks about it. We don't ever get any explanation of that. And I really like that touch, but uh, you know, anyway, what they're doing here is that they're going to talk about whether time travel is even possible. And to Paul is adamant that it is not because the Vulcan science directed has decreed that it is not. And she says that this decree is based on logic, right? That time travel just doesn't make any logical sense. But Flock suggests that maybe embracing surprises and adapting to them is a, a better um, philosophy, a better approach to living than hard logic. And in the end, I have to say that this conversation really strikes me as quietly highlighting the manner in which Vulcans have a really prescriptive way of doing science, right? Which is to say that they first establish principles through the application of logic and then look for evidence to support those principles. But then on the other hand, right, we, you know, humans like living now, real people do science as an attempt to explain the evidence in front of us, no matter how surprising that evidence is. And in fact, I'm not sure that we would even really describe what the Vulcans do, or at least the way it's presented here. I'm not sure we would even describe that as science. And I really like this. I like this just a, a, a ton. I really enjoy this here. It's a, a nice way to quietly emphasize something that Enterprise has been doing from the start, which is to show us that Vulcan logic is a religion and a cosmology. I think we're still very much in in this part of the timeline within the Trek universe in the um, Vulcans don't lie or do anything nefarious ever um, <laughs> belief system, though Enterprise is messing with that because they they do that um, in a big way with the Andorian stuff um, that happens in Enterprise. Um, we see that Vulcans do lie and uh, behave badly and, and have secret things going on. So, you know, I also felt like you know, she doesn't really look in the camera, but I felt again that like elbow kind of nudge <laughs> that was like, no, 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 Vulcans do everything logically all the time, right? There'd be no other reason to hide this information <laughs> from the public, would there? Um, so that's part of what's happening here. Also, I never realized it before, but well, the, I'm kind of laughing to myself because you said something like to Paul and Flox in the galley at night and we just released our episode on Darmok. Um, right. And so <laughs> it just really had the Darmok vibes um, given that there were no verbs um, and there were so many proper <laughs> nouns. But 
I, what T'Pol does here is very Janeway. Very Janeway with coffee in the galley at 3 a.m. Yeah, you know what? I never made that connection before, but you're right. We do get a lot of Janeway in the galley, you know, the the dark hours uh, with coffee. Though Neelix is so frequently there that I, you know, I, I don't really always associate that with Janeway being alone and working, where I do associate to Paul with that. I mean, Janeway is alone, but when people come in, she's happy to chat with them, um, which I guess is the huge, huge difference. And yeah, this scene kind of makes me a little bit sad for Flox, which is something I often feel. Flox is so excited to get to know other people and other cultures and other species um, and to chat and to share knowledge. And he's so open and warm and just really invites intimacy. And this is a cool scene where, you know, this these are our two non-human characters that are on the ship. You You would think, what an opportunity to bond, to have a friendship and you know, Paul just makes that really, really difficult, which then makes me feel like Flox is so alone and makes me sad. Um, but I just loved seeing how their entirely different personalities interacted here. And one of the big things we're learning is that, you know, Paul often uses logic to cut herself off from new viewpoints. And Flox is like, new v- viewpoints given to me, more, more, more. Yeah, I mean, there's a real introvert extrovert component to their dynamic here that that is played a little bit for laughs here. I mean, there's something comedic to this scene, but I do also think that it highlights the the seriousness of what you're pointing to, Valerie, the, the fact that they are the two non-human characters. And we're getting shown here that they clearly come from very different cultures. And, and it's just being subtly shown to us. It's not something that has to be explicated with the speech, but can be shown to us in the way that these characters are even just comporting themselves, their relationship with food, their body language, the speed at which they're speaking. All of that is just brilliant, brilliant character work. And it's so great to just see people who are different. And I think that's something that Enterprise, which has a lot of critics, I think that's something that Enterprise doesn't get enough credit for is is the depth of character work uh, that they that they do in these quiet moments. And in fact, that's a, a good point, I think, for us to move into the next of these character moments that I want to talk about or, or want to spend perhaps an inordinate amount of time on. And that is uh, the conversation between Trip and Reed as they work on analyzing this time machine ship. And here, the question is not whether time travel is possible, but the question is whether you would want to know the future if you could. And Reed, uh, I think to nobody's surprise, totally would, but Trip absolutely would not. And the difference here is interesting. Reed just wants to know who he is supposed to marry, uh, and he makes a joke about avoiding awkward first dates, though uh, I think we all know that the common denominator on all those awkward first dates is, is, is Reed himself, so there might not be any avoiding it. But Trip has a totally different view on this. He puts this all into a kind of hypothetical situation, like almost like a, a simulation. And he says that, well, okay, so let's imagine that Reed knows he's supposed to marry someone. Uh, we could just call her Valerie, perhaps. I don't know. That's a good name no, here. We, so well, no, <laughs> Abort. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll call her Lucy. Uh, so, so Reed finds Lucy. He asks her on a date and they date for a while. And then he asks her to get married and they do. And the question for Trip here is, did Reed actually do that because he was in love with Lucy or just because it's what he was supposed to do. But Reed's response to this, I think, is is priceless. The response is, what difference does it make? And I have to say, I'm on team trip here. 
but I wonder, I wonder about you, Valerie. Where do you, where do you fall on this? Well, I mean, I think team trip is team overthinking, team anxiety disorder. So clearly I'm on team trip. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing, you know, for all of uh, Malcolm's flaws, he is kind of, you know, choosing the simpler, happier thing. Um, and trip, you and myself, good company, glad to be in this company, um, are kind of like, no, 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 my brain would destroy it. <laughs> um, so clearly I'm on team, no, 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 my brain would destroy it because that's what my brain does to things. And this conversation too, or the, you know, there's, there's different attitudes about this, I think also really served to highlight something you were talking about with Reed earlier, Valerie, which is the kind of loneliness that's at the core of this character. Because the hypothetical situation here is you could know anything at all about the future, right? Imagine you could pick one thing to find out about your future. What would it be? And he wants to know who he's going to marry. And that makes me feel a little sad. Like you can see that he is, he is lonely. You can see that here. And it's great character work. It's great character work. What I would want to know, I mean, I feel like the sub question here is like, do you want to know things from the future, Valerie? So I've just decided that you asked it of me and I'm going to answer it. Um, but like, I would want to know, you know, am I going to be financially okay um, in, you know, five years? And then if the answer is yes, I'll be like, great, I'm taking the next five years off work because apparently I can do that and still be fine. Um, <laughs> like, I just want an excuse to have a vacation. <laughs> yeah, right. I think for me, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna one up you there, Valerie, and say that what I want to do is go to the future, see if the Federation is there. And if it is, stay there. Uh, <laughs> I'll have brought my family and friends with me, of course. But, you know, that's yeah, because I, I feel you. Vacation is exactly what we what we need. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, thinking about time travel and how I could uh, use information from the future to enact um you know, social good um, is probably what I would actually do. But for the the silly little experiment of this podcast, I just want a vacation. Right. Well, silly little experiment is not over because there is one last component to this conversation, which is that although Trip says he does not want to know anything about the future and just would not go to the future if that was an option for him, he does say that he would absolutely jump at the chance to visit the past because, uh, he really wants to see a Stegosaurus. Uh, Reed, on the other hand, would go to 1588 to see the English defeat the Spanish Armada, and that does seem very, very Reed. But I really love this offhand detail from Trip, and and it is offhand because the plot's really about to start happening again. But I I, I love that what he really wants to do with the time machine is just go see dinosaurs, right? He's he's a kid. Trip is a kid. I mean, Trip is, and that's what's so charming about him. He has like a childlike wonder with which he sees the world and it's paired with, you know, kindness and competence. So like who wouldn't like that person, right? Um but also we get that the little insight into Malcolm's character too because Trip says, "Oh, I bet there was a reed at that battle," right? Because what we know about um part of the part of the sadness and loneliness and pressure of Malcolm is that his parents are pretty harsh and he comes from kind of a a very like elite background um that maybe is like quite pretentious um, with like long lines of important history of things that the family has done and that, you know, we, we must continue to do important and significant things uh, for the family and its name. And so the, the implication here is that, you know, there was some naval officer uh, in the Reed family at this battle that did something important. And that's why he wants to go there. That's those are the things that are important to him or that he's been taught are important. Whereas Tripp's like, let's just have some fun. 
Also, I will say that I have a really hard time imagining that in the 22nd century, a Starfleet officer wouldn't know that a Stegosaurus was an herbivore. But yeah, that's a great point, though. I will say, you know, as someone who uh, for the first time in decades is now reading books about dinosaurs again, I, I did in second grade know a lot about dinosaurs. But as an adult, I have forgotten almost all of that, though. It's great that once you have a kid, you get to learn all about dinosaurs again. Well, here's a here's another question, Valerie, since we also both picked a kind of hypothetical future we would go to. Um, where are you on this? I mean, I don't think that you're likely to want to go to see, you know, the Spanish Armada uh defeated in 1588, but what would you do with a time machine that could only go to the the past? And let's say explicitly uh, the past before you were born. I mean, I would really have to think about this this answer uh, for a much longer time, though I'll just answer uh, off the cuff and from the heart, which is, you know, uh, one of the, the questions like that comes off, I guess, like in party game type conversation things is like, who would you want to have a dinner party with? Or what figure would you want to meet from the past or something like that? Um, And I'm sure I could come up with better answers. There's lots of really cool things I'm interested in. Um, You know, I would love to go to uh, classical Rome, I would love to go back to the Renaissance, I would love to like see some of the like actually inhabit the worlds that I've studied before. Um, there are many worlds that I would like to to know about, but those are just the ones that I have studied and could make kind of a, what did I construct in my mind versus what was really happening comparison. Um, but my immediate answer is uh, I would want to go back and meet my grandmother when she was younger. Um, in her 40s, she started a, a, a candle company and uh, it closed the year that I was born, but it's kind of part of the family lore. Everybody worked there. Um, And, you know, my mom at age 17 was like running HR or whatever. uh, And I would just I would love to to go back and see what that was like and meet my grandma at that time and kind of visit the factory. Um, That would be the first thing I would do. I think the Venn diagram of our answers here is classical Rome, right? Like that definitely is something I would love to go see to actually walk around, you know, the, not, maybe not actually the Rome that Julius Caesar walked around, but the, the or even Augustus, but the, the Rome of like Trajan, for example, which is really, you know, what, what is left as well. Uh, I would totally check that out or, you know, seeing the, the, you know, the pyramids, I guess, or like the ancient Near East, like the cities of, of Sumer. Um, I don't know. I'd like to read Gilgamesh, maybe be the first person to read Gilgamesh or something like that. All of that stuff's pretty cool. But I actually have to say, I'm on team trip here again, that I think what I would really do, you know, if what I was given was a time machine and just had, you know, I was like, you know, you know, given a week, you could go back for and you're going to and then you're just going to bounce back to your actual life. I'd actually really like to go back to like deep, deep, deep time when the whole planet was just totally different. It's not so much that I want to see dinosaurs. In fact, I might even go back to before dinosaurs, but just to see the earth with just an entirely different ecosystem and totally totally different types of life. Uh, I think that would be cool in part because that's the closest thing that I'm ever going to get to actually going to like another planet would be, I guess, to go back in time and see earth when it was a very different planet than it exists today. Yeah. I mean, I want to see all the things, um, right. Right. Which is, <laughs> you know, there's, there's no one thing, but if, but if I had to pick, I think it would be, yeah. Um, something closer, closer to the heart, but, um, I could play this game all day. Oh, I know. I mean, like also um, go to uh, see the um, original production of Hamlet or something like that. I mean, those, you know, there's tons of things, of course. Right. But uh, I like Tripp's answer is what I'm saying. So <laughs> more than more than reads to actually just even like take it out of history and and, and think think bigger uh, was something about Tripp that I also liked. In addition to the fact that he just likes dinosaurs. 
But all right, let's get back to the the plot here. So it turns out that the damaged ship is emitting some temporal radiation and and Trip and Reed actually repeat the same conversation several times. It's this conversation about the dinosaur as we, the audience, just watch the scene reset and then rerun, but they do become aware of it. And there is some disagreement as they you know go to the chain of command here. There's some disagreement between Archer and T'Pol about whether or not time is looping in the launch bay. Uh, and then they also disagree about what to do about it. And T'Pol just wants to destroy the ship and also pretend that the temporal Cold War is not happening because she doesn't even believe in time travel. But Archer is not going to do that. And now, at this point, they really are just a few minutes from the rendezvous with the Vulcan ship when the Suliban return. But this time, it's not just one ship pretending not to be all that interested in what's going on. This time, it's actually a small fleet, and they're here for for business. And so there is a space shootout as the Enterprise races to the rendezvous. But when they get there, they see that the Vulcan ship has been disabled by the Tholians, a fleet of Tholian ships. The good news, though, is that the Tholians and the Suliban are not on the same side, and they fight each other, leaving the Enterprise to its own devices for a little while. And so, as they're fighting, Archer puts two plans into place. And one is to have Trip quickly figure out how to activate a time beacon on the ship, on this ship in the launch bay, that maybe will let people in the future know where the ship is. And then the other plan is to assume that plan A is not going to work. And so uh, the other plan is to blow up this ship by putting a torpedo on it and then launching it and and, and blowing it up just outside of the, the Enterprise. And this is a really dramatic sequence, I'll say, as they race to do these things and the Tholians defeat the Suliban and are just about to turn their attention to the Enterprise... But in the end, the the beacon does work and all the stuff from the future just vanishes. And that's really, yeah, that's really how the the episode or like, you know, the the main plot anyway comes to an end. But we do get a coda with Trip and T'Pol and Archer. But this is largely here to explain how, you know, time travel stories work really to someone who's never seen, you know, I don't know, Back to the Future, I guess. Right. And uh, also, though, we do get a joke about how unlikely it is that humans and Vulcans will ever reproduce together again with the subtext being entirely about Spock. And that is then the episode. And I have to say, I really enjoyed it. There was more substance here than I expected from a beat in the temporal Cold War arc. Yeah, you know, this episode covered a lot of ground. And what I actually uh, was surprised to see and in a really enjoyable way about this episode was that, yeah, okay, you know, we're referencing a bunch of things, a bunch of TOS episodes, a bunch of complicated temporal Cold War. And also, the, go to, to go back to like what you said earlier, the mood of the episode is not really chaotic. I feel like I walked away from this episode having enjoyed a nice little character study of all the people on this ship. It wasn't an episode about any single one of them, but it was an episode about how they are all coexisting and what their individual personalities are like and how they're trying to navigate life on a ship together given their, you know, different species, but also their different personalities. And we just got to see little beats of everybody's character. Even if we, you know, subtract the kind of 
sexual tension they're trying to push between T'Pol and Archer, we just see tension, right? The tension between Vulcans and humans that exists in this moment of time and how that is playing out as Archer softens to T'Pol and T'Pol softens to Archer and how that is going to change the the course of history as we will know it in the Trek universe. Um, but we also see so much of Tripp's character, of Malcolm's character, of Flox's character, I guess we don't get like any Hoshi. <laughs> um, <laughs> we get more Hoshi than Travis. Yeah, or any Travis. Poor Travis. There's just very little Travis um, in general in the show. Um, but yeah, I, this was just like a nice, a nice little um, easy character play uh, that had some complicated background stuff in it. Yeah, I'm glad that you emphasized just the the, the regular non-romantic or non-sexual tension that would get between T'Pol and Archer because this disagreement that they have about what should we do with this ship, especially now that we know it's leaking temporal radiation of some sort, is really intense. Like, they couldn't have viewpoints here that are farther apart to Paul, you know, just wants to be cautious and, and safe and solve the problem immediately, which is just kick this ship out of our launch bay like that. And then it's over. No one's trying to shoot us or blow us up anymore. Also, we don't have the radiation to deal with. The problem is over from our perspective and everything is fine. But Archer loves to make things more complicated than Perhaps they seem like they need to be from T'Pol's perspective. And he's just got a bigger agenda than just keeping the ship and his crew safe. He's interested. He's invested in the very idea of the temporal Cold War. I guess he does have more information about it than T'Pol does. He's also got firsthand experience with it, which T'Pol does not have at this point. But so he's trying to do more than that. And this is going to be, and and this is a dynamic that we're going to see between them again and again and have already seen a little bit. But, but you're right. I, I'm glad you pointed out how emblematic that disagreement is of their characters and yeah just how much awesome character work is being done on this episode and speaking of thinking about the characters on this show because this is the first time that we've done an enterprise episode on the main show here it's time to play a little smooch merry kill valerie oh my gosh. so uh, oh my gosh <laughs> and uh it's 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 gonna be you you're gonna you're gonna be doing the smooching marrying and killing here and uh um i guess no, no restrictions here. Just, uh, just who do you want to put in those slots? Oh wow, no restrictions, no restrictions at all. I can involve a Tholian if I want. I mean, we didn't really meet any Tholians. I mean, look, yeah, you, you know, you heard the Tholian on the radio. You, you know, if that worked for you. <laughs> oh, this is really really complicated this is a very i have to say this every time it's always it's just always a hard a hard place to be glenn um but uh i think my answers are pretty clear i i will say and this is something that i guess is different in the way i view enterprise when i'm thinking about smooches marryings and killses um which is that I am much more attracted in general, um, or both attracted and repulsed by the men on this show um, than the women, um, which is kind of unusual for me. But I think, gosh, what order we usually go in? Smooches first? I mean, I think we change every time. And I think often it's a process of elimination, though I think you and I also do both have a tendency to uh, uh, try to lead up to some dramatic reveal. And it's usually the kill. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the kill is going to be a dramatic reveal here. Um, maybe we'll just start with that. <laughs> um, yeah, is it is it Malcolm or is it Reed? 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> that right. is the perfect question. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I should kill a Tholian. Maybe I should kill a Sulaban uh, agent uh, being controlled by a nefarious person in the future. But I just don't need Malcolm to be here. I'm sorry, Malcolm. I just can't. Um, so, yeah, Malcolm's gone. Um, though, who knows? Maybe that's really going to mess with the timeline. And I shouldn't do that. And Malcolm is actually way more important than I understand. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing to do here rather than kill Malcolm, though, that is the name of the game. But, you know, just put him in the time ship. And uh, it's going to turn out that it will actually go back to 1588. And the Reed who participated in the defeat of the Spanish Armado was this Reed. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's the story he wants to live in. So you're really just doing him a favor. Sure, sure. Look, I don't want to kill Reed. I just, I want better for him. I'd like him to be happier. So if instead of killing anyone, I could just give them happiness, um, I'm going to give happiness to Reed, but also a kind of happiness where he leaves me alone. Okay, but the real thing here is who am I going to smooch and who am I going to marry? And look, I'm, I think in some ways going to go against my gut here um my gut says i should marry flox and smooch trip this makes sense flox is clearly such a good life partner um so much joy so much interest he'd be totally down for adventure he communicates incredibly well we would really be able to navigate difficulties in life together um i would have a lot of independence and freedom it makes sense for me to marry flox the problem is i am just so into trip i don't know what to do with myself um and so i will take the, the potentially worst life partner but it's trip and i get to spend more time with him um so i'm actually gonna marry trip and smooch flox because uh yeah flox is great i just want to spend some more time with him uh, a chance to get closer to him would be great yeah, well, and I think even this episode, you know, spends more time with Trip than it does with Phlox. And the Phlox that we we get is this emotionally satisfying brief conversation in the galley at night that I think can stand in as a metaphor for smooching. Yeah, totally. And you know what? Look, if anything were to happen to Trip, which it would not because that episode is not canon, but if anything <laughs> were to happen to Trip and, you know, therefore I would be no longer married to him. Um, I think Phlox would like, you know, let me hit him up again. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Phlox has several wives and uh, they're, yeah, the whole Denobulan marriage uh, system, I think it's got room for you. It's got room for you. Yeah, there's room for me there. So I think this is the right decision and that's what I'm going with. All right. Well, on that note, and uh, I guess given that Valerie has some things to go take care of here, I guess that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. Or better put, now that Valerie has thoroughly embarrassed herself publicly, that's going to do it for this episode. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. <laughs> right. Well, all right. One last reminder that we are voting now to decide which Star Trek movie franchise we're going to cover. So if you're not already with us on Patreon, please join us before the end of the month so that you can participate in that vote. We're, we're just so excited to get to do movies. Yeah, you know, Glenn, you think I, I keep playing my hand, but I absolutely am not playing my hand. I don't make any references to liking to look at Spock in a headband on a bus. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, don't let me influence your vote. Um, I can't wait to see what happens either way. Yeah, no matter which of these franchises wins, there are going to be a lot of interesting 
rounds of smooch mary kill and also good cocktails so uh it's it's win-win no matter what happens and also of course as always we want to say a huge thank you to everyone who does already support us on patreon none of the shows on the network would be possible without your support and we really really appreciate that and next month we are actually going to be doing something here on the main show that we normally do exclusively for patreon supporters and that is rather than do an episode review we are going to play a game of star trek season survivor and we will leave it until that episode to actually explain what the heck that is but we hope to see you there and until then stay spacey